We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. We're starting off this season of the podcast by continuing our collaboration with the Asia-Pacific Architecture Festival, otherwise known as APAF. The theme of the festival this year is Cooperate, Co-Design and Coexist. In this episode, we're focusing on the word coexist and how architects are bringing their clients and communities into the design process with them. Our guest in this episode is Brinda Samaya of SNK Architects in India, who is a leader in an emerging form of participatory design that breaks down parts of the traditional hierarchy that separates architects from the end users. Let's jump in. All right, Brinda, thank you so much for joining me on the Hearing Architecture Podcast. It's an absolute delight to have you. How are you going? Doing very well. Our studio has reopened again after a long hiatus, so we're all very excited to get back to our projects. Yeah, fantastic. It's going to be great to have you back in the studio and to see what work you're going to be producing for us in the near future. You're going to be part of our APAF episodes, which is the Asia-Pacific Architecture Festival, where we're talking a lot about co-design, collaborate and cooperate. And you've, you've participated in quite a few projects where you've collaborated with people in the community that you're designing for. Do you want to tell us a little bit about some of those projects and, and what that has meant for your practice? Well, for me as an architect, the diversity of my practice in India is enormous. Uh, as you know, India is a very big country with many different geographies, ethnicities, languages, religions, culture, food, everything. So depending on which part of India I have been asked to come and work as an architect, I have to understand the context and the people and the land of that particular place. So for me, those are very, very important things because I don't see uh, my work as just building. I believe I go beyond buildings. And so naturally, the people who are going to use what I design become very, very important, the protagonist of the space. So in every project, whether it is a project in a rural area or even an urban area, for me, the function of the building, the use of the building, the sense of place, the sense of time, the sense of history, what's around it, these are all the important things. I'm not really interested in leaving pieces of sculpture all over the planet. I think there are many sculptors who will do that. For me, architecture is something very personal, emotional, and collaborative. Yeah, that's quite a traditional idea that uh, an architect would come along and have a grand vision and then leave a sculpture on the landscape. And it's lovely to hear that you're designing for the, the end user. When did you start to implement this approach into your practice? I think that was always there. That's the sort of person I am. I studied in, in Mumbai and in the United States. And when I came back, I knew that I was passionate about what I wanted to do. So for me, I never really had any mentors because uh, that's how it was. 
I didn't work with any large companies when I came back. So I just started on my own for various personal reasons. So architecture was just an extension of whom I was. It wasn't as though I was trying to emulate or look up to what had gone before. It's not that I didn't read. It's not that I was uneducated, so to say, but I decided on my own path. And living in a country like India, you cannot be an architect if you do not understand the people for whom you are designing. Otherwise, you will be totally peripheral to everything. So it was just part of what I believed my studio had to do. Fantastic. So how has that actually influenced your your process? Well, to create a just and equitable society, I do not believe that creativity is lessened or undermined in any way. In fact, the challenges are there. So it all has to work together. And I think one of the important projects uh, which you have also mentioned is uh, the reconstruction of a village that I did in 2020 years ago, which was completely devastated by a massive earthquake. I had a client for whom I used to do a lot of industrial work, actually, and other types of buildings. They have been my clients for almost four decades now. And we had sort of an agreement that he always gave us wonderful architectural urban projects, but it was understood that I would always do his pro bono projects. He had a big foundation. So whether it was a part of a hospital, whether it was part of a slum, it didn't matter. My studio was always there to do those projects. So we had a great balance. And that made me develop the sense that a certain percentage of my studio work had to be pro bono work or work that was connected with underprivileged parts of society. Because India has a combination of very rich people as well, very rich corporates. So it's not that the entire country is poor, but we also have a lot of poor people. So I believe any architectural practice has to balance the two and also look at conservation, which is an important part of my studio. So when the earthquake happened, he called me the very next day and he said, Brinda, we've got to go and find a village that we have to take up and look at. So we trotted off to Kutch, which was Northwest India, and we finally found a village that nobody had taken because most of the villages that were predominantly Hindu had been taken by Hindu NGOs, if it was predominantly Muslim, by Muslim NGOs. So we found this wonderful village which had a different balance, sort of a 60-40. And it was very close, actually, quite close to the Pakistan border. It was northwest of the capital of uh, Kach. That was the project. Uh, it was completely devastated. People were, were actually sitting on the rubble. And that was a very, very important learning project for me. What did you start to build in to that design process? How did you start to invite that community into the design process to start to rebuild their, their whole village, which had been destroyed? Well, that was my first large community project, but I had done several smaller ones in the city of Mumbai before that. I had converted garbage dumps into gardens working with people who surrounded that garbage dump, which was a combination of slum dwellers and multi-story housing. Because in India, unlike, say, in South Africa, we do not separate the economic levels of people into different parts of the city. 
you can be staying in a million, almost a billion dollar house today. You have some of those in Mumbai. And next door to you would be a slum. So when I found this, uh, when we decided to convert this garbage dump into a garden, which still is beautiful today, it was one of the first public-private partnerships, I had to work with all different types of people. So I learned how to do that. I had to work with slum dwellers. I had to work with the rich. I had to work with the municipality, the public works department. So it wasn't new, totally new to me. I had done other projects in the city. But coming back to the village, when I walked around the village, I found that the people were just sitting on the land, on their piece of land. And what the government was doing for some of the other earlier earthquake devastated villages they would find another piece of land and, and just build on a grid basis. But I spoke to these people and what I got back, the feedback was, they did not want to move from this original piece of land. They did not want to move, even though they had no house standing, that was their land. They wanted to be next door to their neighbors. They wanted to be in that part of the village. And I heard them. So the first thing I had to do was to map the village and decide, you know, put them back. And I told them that if this is what you want, it's going to take time. And they said, that's fine. We will sleep out in the open. It was January, which is a cold month in India, but we want to be back in our original pieces of land. And that's what we did for them. So that, and we saved the rubble, which we used in the foundation. We saved their doors, their windows, and sort of stacked each up on each piece of land so that we could put it back in the house. So give them a sense of a home when they fail. And then we prepared three alternative plans because I couldn't do, you know, 100 or 200 plans. So for a single room house, for a one bedroom house and for a two bedroom house. And then depending on what they had, we told them that we would buy the materials for them. My client put in the money, but they would have to build the houses themselves. Now, this was very, very important. And we got the support of what we call the panchayat, the five people who look after the village. The boss was a woman and she was, wow, she was tough. I had to deal with her. She was very clear what she wanted. She would make me come and sit down and eat and drink what she gave me. And that's another story. We won't have enough time for all that. But I had to deal with her and other members of the panchayat. So we had several meetings. And they gave me several thoughts, um, you know, the pitch of the roof, how it should be. They were worried about cyclones also later. We had to make sure that the earthquake, the seismic considerations would happen and how the kitchens should work, how their rooms should work. So it was wonderful. And they had animals also in the open space outside the house, toilet outside the house. We wanted to create that, give them water. We wanted to also upgrade their standard of living. So we got the material and then nobody was building it. And I told them that we are not going to bring in labor from outside the village to bring their homes. They're all wonderful craftsmen. We all knew they can build their houses. And they were depressed because the village had been flattened. So what we said was, group of you get together and rebuild each other's houses and we will pay you for doing that. This way, we actually created employment, we generated income, and they began to rebuild one by one, one by one. And finally, they rebuilt all the, all the houses, the groups of people themselves. That's incredible. 
And uh, it seems like with cooperative design, you beautifully demonstrated a core part of the process where there needs to be good documentation that you have listened to to the group that you are working for. How did that process uh, evolve your own drawing techniques or communication techniques so that the community could understand the plans, sections, elevations, things like that? Yes, we did. They couldn't necessarily read one-dimensional plans. So we always would do three-dimensional images to show them how it would look. And this was 22 years ago, you know, so uh, we didn't have that many softwares. My studio was not as big as it is today, so it's not like I could take, you know, Google and whatever and show it to them. But we did show them images. They did understand what they were getting. And they're very smart, you know. We don't uh, realize how intelligent and how smart people in the rural areas are. You know, we think we urbanites are know-it-all. But they're the ones who, who really understand how to do things, how to get things done. The water turned brine after an earthquake, which always happens. So we created a new water collection ponds. They planted trees. They won an award for that. And we built, of course, the school later. So they're very smart people. They just need a catalyst. They need support in certain areas. And they take the responsibility because finally it's their village. It's not mine. They have to look after it. And uh, that's a helping hand, as I say. Hmm. Yeah. And, and that's a really good point that, you know, when you're working with a village or a collective of people, you've got this incredible intelligence there and experience there that you can draw from as, a, as an architect and as a creative. And in the traditional architecture arrangement, I guess some clients expect you to, you know, pull a rabbit out of the hat, sort of do some sort of magic for them and, and surprise them. Was there ever an instance when you were working with the community that, that they surprised you with, with some of their amazing ideas that they could bring into the design of their community? Yes. For instance, uh, when I did the section of the room, I had taken the pitch to come onto a wall, which would then become the edge of the kitchen wall. But they did not like that. They did not like a room which was not completely balanced, you know, where the ridge would be right in the center of the room. That's what they wanted, you know. So it's not superstition, but they had certain, that was their aesthetic sense. And they were a very artistic village, you know. They made what is called bandini, which is a type of textile. And so we gave them a lot of organic paint and other materials so that they could decorate the village because for them, decoration is extremely important. Sometimes they got carried away because they were getting all this free and they were decorating outside, inside. But I let them do it because that's their work and it's their home. So we had all these decorated houses. And also the plan was done in such a way that everybody could extend a veranda, what we call an otla, which is a raised platform where they sit out or sleep in winter. They could have a little porch. So, you know, I keep going back and many people keep going back to this village. So they send me pictures and the houses all look different now because each one has made what I gave them into their home. And I'm not going to say it's the most sophisticated addition, but who cares? You know, I don't care. And I'm happy to publish what they've done. Now, 
show in my own books because they've made their uh, what I gave them into their home. They've done it. Do you think that the way that architects are trained, we might a lot of us might feel like we need to have that control so that then it looks the way we want it to look. And then when you start to use this this process of of cooperative design and letting people take over the creative process a little bit and put their own flavor into the design that it can actually take your designs even further is is that the sort of thing that you've been seeing absolutely right and it's not just in the rural areas i designed a small church in navi mumbai which is um, an extension of the city of mumbai it was a very small church and uh, it was for a certain number of people so it had a ground floor and a mezzanine floor and it was very architectural it was very small it, it it really was although i say it shouldn't be a piece of sculpture it was sculptural because it was very small but it fulfilled all the conditions now what happened was that church became so popular that they started having different services in many many languages so the ground floor and the mezzanine was not enough they used to have three services a day so what they did on the terrace the flat terrace which i had on the top they put up a temporary uh, structure with blue terrible blue plasticky some sort of gi sheeting and they absolutely infringed into this wonderful front elevation that i had designed which was very you know the money was very tight so i had actually created a sculptural cross in the front because we didn't have money to do anything more and they cut into that and when i saw it i said, oh my god what have they done and then i thought to myself but this shows the success of my building this shows how they have absolutely taken it as their own and when i brought out my book uh, works and continuities i went round photographing my buildings as they are today and i took a picture of this church with this wonderful blue shed on top of it and my editor and everybody i mean all the people were saying surely brinda you're not going to put this picture in the book i said i'm very much going to put this picture in the book and i'm going to explain why i have put it in the book so if you ever see my book you'll find this church with this blue extension on the top so that's fine that's fine with me i don't have an issue with it Yeah, it seems like maybe architects are starting to discover that there is added value and benefits to that moment after a project is handed over and we are discovering the way people are, are adding things to it and improving it for their own needs beyond what information you might have been given or we might have been given during the briefing phase or you know even through the whole design phase. and that's just part of the life cycle of of our buildings is that uh, do you think that's something that we're starting as architects to appreciate is that full life cycle of a building from the time we design it to when we let go of it and then this other life afterwards i hope so i really hope so because i think it's very important but i don't think it's the case everywhere a couple of years ago i was looking at a residential home of an architect and the person told me that they're getting it photographed by a very famous international photographer so i said wonderful and then they told me the only condition was the photographer said that every piece of furniture within the house had to be removed 
the house had to be absolutely empty. And I thought to myself, my God, then why? I mean, what are you trying to do? What are we trying to do? You're trying to photograph an empty house. Or are you trying to photograph the house for whom you built, the people for whom you built this house for? You're just getting rid of of every sensibility or every emotion and every person who's in the house. And that was published in all the most important journals worldwide with all these empty rooms in this house. And, you know, this really worries me. You know, this sort of thinking, is it couldn't be more different from my beliefs. I would like to get the mess of how they use the house rather than an empty house. Absolutely. I mean, that's our role. That's our role as architects. Yeah, absolutely. And do you find that that appreciation of architecture has has changed for you over your career where it might have been a little bit different when you were younger and you just started taking on your own projects through to now and you've worked on so many complex projects with so much more built into them? Do you think that's sort of changed over time? Oh, yes, because the scale has changed, you know, uh, the scale of what work we do. I mean, a couple of years ago, we finished a million square foot greenfield campus on a flat piece of land. Now, how do I think as an architect to build something like that versus a village or that church? So, of course, ideas change, thoughts change. But I think there's a thread which runs through all my work and there has to be a context I walked the land. Just recently, we uh, got a, another project, which is in a town in the northeast part of India. So I had gone to the site. I need to walk the land. I need to understand the land because I like to tread the land lightly. So I need to see the land. So this a million square feet in 100 acres of property, how do we begin to design that? What's the context there? It was for a big information technology campus for thousands of young people, then I've got to think differently. I've got to understand what's the purpose. Who are the people? What is their age group? Are they going to be all the time in front of the computer? So when they need a change, what do they need to do? How do they need to bring the outdoors in? How do they need to escape technology for some time? And how do I create something interesting when the land actually has no physical features? It's absolutely flat. There's nothing around. How do I create a context? So this case, I used a river which ran not through the land, but which ran nearby in that state and flowed through many different parts of India. It started in the mountains high up, then went through jagged rocks and ended in the Arabian Sea. And I used those three aspects of the river to design the campus. So every project is different depending on its size and scale, the budget, the location. So it's very exciting. I just love being an architect. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, that's, that's fantastic. I think that once you've become an established practice and you're working on these big, beautiful briefs with lovely big projects, that you can see the value in what you're doing between different typologies of buildings and different contexts, like you say. In a project where you might not have as much contact with the whole community, say if it's for a, a campus versus something like a small village, how does SNK assess the value in the output? So if, if in a small village you can almost go and meet everyone and, and see how they're living in the space, 
versus a, a campus where you will walk through the whole campus afterwards. How does your practice assess the success and value of the, of the output in the end? Well, I think your question actually has some of the answers. You know, you have to think differently. And I think we're learning all the time. Now we've done a lot of campuses, both educational as well as corporate. So we learn from each project. I think technology is beginning to play a very important role in our work in different ways. India is quite well known for IT and information technology. So people want really things to be high tech in many ways. So we recently did the international headquarters of the Tata Group, which is the largest corporate group in India. And they had this 100-year-old building and they decided to make that there, you know, upgrade that building. So here we had this beautiful heritage building in the heart of Mumbai, and we had to make it 2020 plus in, in high-tech abilities. So we have to keep studying. We have to keep learning. We, I mean, I'm a senior citizen now. I've had three booster. I've had a, two vaccinations and the booster, but I love to learn. I think I'm learning all the time. I believe very much in a circular economy. I believe very much in uh, conservation. As you know, uh, my studio is conserving the Louis Kahn buildings in the Indian Institute of Management in Ahmedabad, which was a completely different type of challenge working, almost trying to talk to Louis Kahn (laughs) about what, what he did and how do we restore his buildings respecting him. So heritage conservation of not just colonial buildings, but ordinary buildings is very important. Recycling, retrofitting, uh, repair work, embodied energy of buildings. All this is so, so important. So the practice is so diverse and, and just encompasses all these aspects of what I believe in and what I believe I can contribute to as long as I can. Yeah, absolutely. And because you've had such great experiences and delivered such beautiful projects using cooperative design techniques in your, in your process, do you make every single project use that, that style of process or do you try to talk to the clients to see if cooperative design will work best for them? Well, we like to have a lot of interaction with the client. Now, sometimes the client, if it's a very large project, they may not bring in dozens and dozens of people, but we do like to spend a lot of time and effort in understanding the project, the client's needs, the program of requirements. We like to go on the site. We like to study the site. Those things have to be done. So we don't, you know, I always say, I don't have some magic in my head and then I've come out with this building, you know, like a spark from the sky. And I say, this is what's going to be there. It's a lot of hard work. Uh, it's a lot of effort to collate and collaborate and bring all this information together to begin the design process. But ideas start forming from, the, from that time. And then, you know, we work very democratically in the studio. I don't believe in the star architect. I believe in brainstorming. So we have groups of people. And sometimes we have from another group within the studio who will come and tell us about this project to that group. We believe in being as democratic as possible, not always, because finally I am, (laughs) I don't like to stand the boss, but sometimes I may take a decision which I believe is right. 
Yeah. Well, I think that's that's something that we're all, for the people who are starting to explore cooperative design, is that there's a lot of benefits that can come out of being democratic in the process and having a, a flatter hierarchy. Do you ever feel that it is just a, a feeling for when you have to say, no, I have to make a call on this? Or do you have a very strict process set up so that then you know that there are certain moments where it has to be democratic and it's almost a design decision to made with a vote in a way? I think it's more intuitive for me because I listen. And then if I really believe that something is missing or, or it has to go a particular way, then I say so. Yes. See, you have to earn the respect of everybody in the studio. And uh, that's what's really important. They should have the freedom to disagree. And finally, if I have to convince them, but then if I feel very strongly about something, then my decision will be the last decision. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And does that also change with the scale of building? Does it seem like with much larger scale projects, then there might be a better chance for, for democratic design and then for smaller projects with a much smaller team, then it makes a little bit more sense to do, you have to sort of choose things yourself and to take a, a fine grain approach to it? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Because sometimes with smaller projects, I may be involved up to a point and then I have a lot of confidence in people. But when it's a very large project, then the, developing the concept And getting that correct and taking that further is not easy. And I like to hear other people, but finally, which is the concept that we finally, we develop and take it further into the conceptual and then, you know, the schematic stage. So sometimes scale is is not easy. One of the projects we've just got is this this year is is a big R&D center and the land is very peculiarly shaped. So it's not easy. We're working hard on it. And I'm not quite sure yet uh, which direction people are going, uh, what will be the final outcome. I always say we have no geniuses in our studio. We are very hardworking, but very creative, committed, and very architects who are very conscious of the surroundings of the earth, planet earth of being sustainable in what we do, being sensitive to what we do. These are the priorities which I also like to bring out. But that does not mean we don't encourage creativity, use of new materials, new ideas, thoughts. They can all go hand in hand. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been very interesting looking at different practices who are starting to uh, rediscover some of the older techniques of building for energy efficient design and passive passive uh, heating and cooling as well. And is that something that your practice has been exploring is is how some of those more traditional building methods can be incorporated into new buildings so that almost what is old is new again because you're you're putting these you're designing these beautiful buildings around or using traditional building techniques. A combination of things. One is uh, we've done exactly what you've said for the Nalanda School. It was a big school complex in Baroda, which is north of Mumbai, where the entire school is non-air conditioned. Because as you know, air conditioning is the biggest problem. So we did it through the design itself. We created lots of courtyards of different sizes because in India, shade is very important. We created double wall systems with cavity walls. We planted a lot of trees near the buildings to give shade. 
all the parapets and all the walls were actually what we call jalis, which is in brickwork with holes, you know, with gaps. And the entire complex, uh, it's over a quarter of a million square feet, is non-air conditioned. Just now they have air conditioned only the computer labs, you know, areas because of the computers. And I always laugh, but they've air conditioned the principal's room because they say when the parents come, they think it should be air conditioned. But otherwise, everything is just naturally ventilated. And now looking at the pandemic, I was thinking that that complex has to be the best designed complex for a pandemic because they didn't have to do anything. Whereas all the glass boxes, which we see around us, air-conditioned glass boxes with windows that don't even open, uh, couldn't function. So there's so much importance in understanding tradition, understanding the vocabulary of what's gone before us, and yet having a contemporary building. That, that becomes the challenge, which is wonderful learning because India has such a history of, of so much that's gone before. Absolutely. And I think sometimes people, when they look at passive systems, when we start to talk about getting rid of air conditioning or, or heating, depending on where you are, they think that if it's a very large building, almost like a school, they think, oh, you're crazy. It's, it's too big to be able to use passive traditional systems. Have you found that when you talk to consultants and they're starting to evaluate if these systems will work, they sort of surprise themselves because once they do the calculations, they realize, oh, wow, these older systems can actually do a lot for these bigger buildings. I think so. We are now working, uh, trying to work on net zero campuses. It's not easy, but we've realized that particularly for our large projects, we bring in sustainability consultants right from the beginning of the project. So whether it is the way the sun travels in India, east, south, west, depending on the location, which are the sides that have very hot sun, you know, and less wind, how do we take care of all these issues? So that starts right from the beginning, you know, we're very aware of that. And I think most Indian clients are aware too that uh, this should be taken. Interestingly, um, I'm on the uh, Wholesome Foundation, on the board of the Wholesome Foundation for Sustainable Construction, and they gave different awards. And what was interesting, the award which won was not just reusing old material, but reusing the material from other buildings as they were in the other buildings. Because suppose you have a truss and you have to change it for your building, again, a huge amount of energy gets lost. But if you design, you decide what you're going to use, or you know what you've got with buildings that have been demolished or available, and then you design your building around some of these things. That's truly sustainable. But it's a very difficult uh, thing to do. It's not easy at all. And I don't think that can happen easily across countries like ours. But just a sensitivity should be there. So and is that a, a big issue in India because of the lack of materials or because there's not a system in place to reclaim some materials from older buildings as they're being torn down? Yes, I don't think there's any lack of materials because we have, you know, stone, we have no problem with cement, steel, everything is made in our country. The demolition man is very fast at work in our country and they demolish and they don't think that they can reuse the debris or reuse what, whether it's the stone and that has to change. 
I recently restored the University of Mumbai's library, which had 1857, which had beautiful Minton tiles because it was built during the colonial time. And we finally managed to get some Minton tiles from other buildings which had been demolished because a lot of this building's uh, flooring had gone. But we, you know, I was on the Heritage Committee years ago and we said we should set up a sort of a bank of materials because Mumbai has so many beautiful buildings which are being demolished also. And if we could set up a bank of old doors, old windows, flooring, you know, all these beautiful columns. But, you know, there's so many ideas, not easy to implement. <laughs> yeah, no, it's got to be tricky. But, I mean, it's also wonderful that you get to work on so many of these beautiful old Indian buildings and then buildings in India that were designed by people like Louis Kahn. And, yeah, I mean, in terms of restoring and reclaiming materials, it must be a bit of a jousting exercise with between you and Louis Kahn about how do you add to the building, how do you respect it, and then, you know, do you adapt things? Is that is that something that you've been going through? Well, I am good friends with Nathaniel Kahn, his son, and, of course, I know Sue Ann too. And Nathaniel and I always have a chat, and I think he's quite happy with what I'm doing for his father's work, so I guess I must be along the right track. We recently won the, uh, a UNESCO award for the library that we did. And the, they said that it's a trailblazer for how 20th century architecture could be saved in India. Because, you know, we do have a lot of very good 20th century architecture, a lot of which is being demolished. And not just Corbusier and Khan, but we have lots of other Indian architects who worked in the 20th century who are no more and who built very, very important buildings. So, you know, this is a battle that is going on all the time and there are no easy answers for this. Absolutely. It sounds like there needs to be a museum for just for Indian architecture so that we can learn a lot more about the Indian architects who are designing these beautiful buildings in, in India and then also the visitors who came in and, and added their ideas along the way. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Brenda. It was really wonderful to have you on the podcast and it was great to hear about all of your achievements undertaking cooperative design projects and what you can bring to the community uh, in India and everywhere where you're doing design work. So thank you so much and I hope we get to speak to you again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you, Daniel, and I hope we will meet one day. Thank you so much. Absolutely. This has been a special episode of Hearing Architecture for the Asia-Pacific Architecture Festival, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to our wonderful guest in this episode, Brinda Samaya of SNK Architects, for her contribution to the architecture profession and for showing how architects can work with communities to create something brand new that everyone's proud of. If you're looking for another architecture podcast to listen to, the city of Townsville has just released Tropics Talks. That's Tropics with an X. Tropics Talks explores design and the architecture profession in the regional city of Townsville, North Queensland. The podcast talks about local experiences, the careers of practicing architects in the north, and favorite local and international projects. Guests include local professionals, Zami Rohan, Mark Kennedy, Highwall Jones, and John Larazabal, to understand more about what drives and inspires creative locals to grow Townsville. So if you'd like to have a listen, you can find Tropics Talks on Spotify. 
Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. To learn more about APAF and all the events, presentations and competitions that are running both in person and online, please visit asiapacificarchitecturefestival.com. And if you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio and the Asia Pacific Architecture Festival. The Institute production team was Stacey Rodder, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the APAF production team was Georgia Burks and Jacinta Reedy. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.